0: All right, so if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke 19. Or if you have an app, you've got a device, open that device up. It's totally okay to use that device to read the Bible. If you use it for anything else, God will probably kill you. I'm kidding. He really won't. It's just a joke, people. It's just kind of half, maybe not. Okay. So we are in Luke chapter 19. Listen, we are in the second, ser- second week of this series called Shift. Some of you are here for the first time. I'm going to catch you up. Is that cool? So last week we started this series in sh- called Shift. Why is it called Shift? That's the question. Here's the answer. Because we believe, we feel, we sense, we know that the Lord is doing something different in our church right now, he's doing something different in our city. We're not the only church in our city that loves Jesus, right? There's lots of churches that love Jesus, and he's just starting to move a little differently. And so we're like, it feels like something is shifting, right? So shift would simply be this. It's not necessarily that we see different things, but we learned last week that sometimes a shift is that we see things differently. So you've heard of a paradigm shift, right? Right? Where you're in a situation and suddenly you learn a piece of information and everything changes just based on that. That would be the kind of shift we're talking about. Last week um, we were looking at the story of Zacchaeus. We talked about making this shift from cop to coach, right? Right. And, and again, it's not that cops are bad and coaches are good. It's not about profession. It's about perspective, right? So just, just one example that we showed last week, how the shift from seeing things as a cop and seeing things as a coach. Cops typically see the worst. They, see, they look for the mistake. But typically coaches are looking for potential. So a cop might see the wrong, but a coach could see the right. Now, listen, It's a. It's again. It's about perspective. How many parents do we have in the room? Raise your hand. How many of you are actively parenting? Like you've got kids in your house right now. Because you know when your when your kids grow up and they move away, how many of you know? Like the first thing parents say is like, "Party!" I'm spending less on groceries. Nobody's interrupting the TV show. I mean, you miss them, but what an amazing adventure, right? But when you've got kids growing up, how many know? Like you want to do all that, but you're just too tired too tired, like you got nothing left. And here's the thing, you can parent your kids like a cop or you can parent your kids like a coach, okay? That's the perspective that we're talking about. How many of you are teachers? Anybody teachers here? So you could teach her like a cop. Oh, and you know when coffee's running low, it's easy to do, right? You can teach her like a cop or you can teach her like a coach. How many students do we have in the house? I mean, middle school, high school, college, college. You can student like a cop. I don't know if student is a verb, but we just made it one. You can student like a cop or you can student like a coach. See, so you see what I'm saying? I can pastor this church like a cop. Always look for the wrong, 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 wrong. Ticket the wrong. Look for the mistake. Or I can pastor this church like a coach and inspire potential. And see, see what I'm saying? And in, in the story of Zacchaeus, here's what we learned last week. Jesus treated Zacchaeus like a coach would treat us. For, this, for the people that lived in the same city as Zacchaeus, they believed that Zacchaeus was the problem, right? We talked about this last week. So they saw him as the problem. How many of you ever feel like the redheaded stepchild of your family, right? They saw Zacchaeus that way. Now, some of you, you've been in church before, and all you know about Zacchaeus is that he was a wee little man, right? That's all we know. But there's so much more to the story than that. He was a thief he was a task collector. He took people's money, and he was hated. So in that city, if they had a vote and said if we could get rid of one person, it would be Zacchaeus. And so he's the problem. And here's what we learn in Luke 19.10, right? This was the key verse last week. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, listen, I don't know if you uh, memorize Scripture or not. I'm sure that most all of you have probably memorized Jesus wept because it's two words. You might not know where it comes from, but you know it's in the Bible, right? But if you're memorizing scripture, I would encourage you to memorize this one because this is the reason, everybody say the, not a, this is the reason Jesus came to the planet. That's it, right there. Like that's the whole deal. The son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Guess who was lost? Me, You, me, and Zacchaeus. So the problem for that city became the purpose for the gospel, right? He was a problem to people, but he was the purpose for Jesus. And that's what we learned last week. That's the shift from cop to coach. A cop sees the problem, a coach sees the purpose. Now, here today, we're in Luke 19. We're going to be at 11 through 27. It's a long passage, I know. And we're going to read it because on the tail end of that encounter with Zacchaeus, now Jesus is going to have this little teaching. He's going to tell a story. And here's where we find the next shift. So let's read it. We'll read the story, talk about it, and then I'll share this shift with you. Here we go. Luke 19, verse 11. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. Now, you might have a translation that does not say silver. It says M-I-N-A-S I went all expert this week to figure out how to say that, and it's minus, okay. But it's it's pound of silver, okay. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he hated, they, but his people hated him and sent a de- delegation after him to say, "We don't want you to be our king." After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. Now, at this point, you might be a little bit lost. It's kind of like watching um, like a Star Wars movie, and you're telling people like every five minutes, you're like, what does that mean? What is, is that important? Don't worry. We'll, we'll come back. It'll all make sense, right? It'll all come together in the end. Verse, Next verse, the first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You've been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. And the next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you were a hard man to deal with. Taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest in it. Let me just make a quick note, okay? You'll talk about this in community groups. I don't have time for it now. But you can read this and go, so God's a jerk? God's a thief? God takes what is not his? That's not what he said. He said, by your own words, I'll condemn you. Your own words condemn you. Here's what he's saying. You thought I was that way. You saw me that way. If you see me that way, you should have at least done this. Okay? All right, let's keep going. You'll talk about it in community groups. it would be great. Then turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant, that third servant, and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well, What they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. As for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. Weird verse to end on, but here we go. All right. So let's talk about the story. First, why in the world is Jesus telling this story? He said it in the very first verse, right? I love it when the Bible's clear. And you got to read the Bible this way. When you're reading the Bible, just stop, ask yourself questions. Sometimes the answer you're asking is actually in the text. First verse in verse 11. Why was Jesus telling this story? Because he wanted to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Listen, he's going to Jerusalem with people who are thinking to themselves, we can't stand the people in charge. And so, Jesus, we know he's the king, we know he's the Messiah. We're pretty sure, maybe, possibly, we're hoping, we're kind of pushing our chips to the center table, that he's going to start the kingdom now. But Jesus knew what we know now, right, because we're so many years later. He knew that going to Jerusalem and starting his kingdom on earth, not at the same time. And so he's trying to correct this, this incorrect thinking about the timing of when all this would take place, when, when his kingdom would be established. And what, what's the context? The context of what he's talking about is the, is the story from last week. Right, so context is like, what caused him to do this? Well, we know he wants to correct the thinking about the timing of the kingdom. But here's the second thing. He told them in Luke 19.10 what his purpose was. Do you remember why he came, what Jesus' mission was? To seek and save the lost, right? I should ask you again because that was not confident. To seek and save the? so much better right like oh oh you gave him a cheat sheet that was awesome so that's the reason Jesus came that's his mission but now he's going to tell a story and here's what he's going to tell them because there's going to be some time in between now and when the kingdom is established forever I need you to be a part of my mission so let's talk about how the mission I'm on should become your mission and that's why he's telling the story so now you ever been to, like, the circus, and they're selling you, like, they want you to pay $100 for that, um, the, the program? And they're like, can't know the people without the program. You ever heard that? Can't know the players without the program, so give me $500 for this little small book. I never get the book, right? But in this parable, we got to know who the players are. So let me just tell you a couple of the parables, a couple of the players. The nobleman, the nobleman that is, is entrusting the money to his servants. The nobleman in this story is Jesus this is King Jesus. Here's what we know from this story. We know that he was going to be returning to heaven to be crowned king. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to resurrect. And then he's going to go to heaven and he's going to be crowned king. How do we know this? Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 say this Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself to the cross, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all of the names that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue c- confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that he's going to return to heaven to be crowned king. We know that he's going to be rejected as king on earth, right? When it said in the parable that the people sent a delegation said, we don't want you to be our king. This is Jesus getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to hear a bunch of people that he came to save say, crucify him, we don't want him to be our king. So he's telling in a story what's going to happen. And then what's going to happen when, he, when they say, we don't want you to be our king, we just read it in Philippians, he's going to go to heaven, be crowned king anyway, because he is the king of kings, and then someday he's going to return to earth as king, there will be no doubt in people's minds. Whether they like it or don't like it, they're going to realize, oh, my, he was the king of kings. He's going to return as king. But there's a delay, right? So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're here today and at some point in your life you prayed and you've given your heart to Christ and you're following Jesus, you're in this parable. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, the parable's not about you. Okay, you can still learn a lot this morning. And I'm praying that the biggest thing you learn is that God loves you and wants you to follow him through Christ. But here's the thing. Here's who we are. We are the servants in this story. And here's what we learn about the servants. Servants have been given something. In this story, they were given a pound of silver or a mina. Now, a mina in Jesus' day was worth three months of salary. Are you doing the math in your head right now? How much exactly is that, right? Not three months after you pay the bills. Three months of wages, okay? I don't know what you make. I don't know, I mean, I don't know, you don't know the person next to you what they make, unless it's your spouse, and you still may not know what they make, right? But if we take the average salary in America, just the average salary in America, this is $12,500. Right about now, what you're thinking is, So, Paul, at the end of this service, are we going to live this out? Are you going to hand us all $12,500 as we walk out the door? Absolutely not, right? It's not going to happen. It's a great idea, though. They got $12,500 handed to them. So we know that servants have been given something, and the servants have been told something. What did Jesus tell them to do with what he was giving them? He said, invest this for me while I'm gone. So it's not enough just to have what he gave you. He's actually asking us to do something with it. He's asking us to invest it. He said to them, like, here, it's yours. Now do something with it while I'm gone. Invest this for me. And then here's the third thing that we learn about the servants, which is us, if we're following Jesus, is that we will be accountable to something. In verse 15, it says, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. Because he wanted to find out what the prophets were. Can I just tell you this? Just jot this down, you'll see it on the screen. The king will inspect what he's asked us to invest. Have you ever had somebody ask you to do something and they never followed up? At some point, you're just like, I guess I'm not gonna do it, right? Because it doesn't matter to them. Jesus isn't that person. Like, I get it. Like, we get busy and forget stuff. But Jesus said, I want you to invest this, and I am going to come and inspect. That's what they found out. That's what they went through. Like, the first two were commended and rewarded. The third was judged and rejected. Can we just um, talk about what this looks like in our lives? Students especially, this won't be hard for you to remember, but if you've been out of school for a while, have a little flashback. You might need to fan yourself because you might get hot thinking about it. But have you ever been in a classroom where you were given oral reports? I mean, like, people fear public speaking only slightly less than death, right? Are you that person? Like, right now, I'm in front of you talking, and it's like, if I think about it long enough, I'll be like, put the mic down and slip out the door, right? It's a little bit nerve-wracking to talk in public. And so when you give reports in class, man, that's hard enough. Have you ever sat in a classroom, and the first person that went, you were just like, oh, man, they just knocked it out of the park. It was like they had all the visuals, multimedia. They were engaging. And you're like, man, that was good. And then the second person goes, and they're not quite as good, but they're still good. And then the teacher calls on you to go, and you know that you're not ready. You know you're not prepared. I don't know if you're a Brian Regan fan, but if you are, this is like the cup of dirt scenario, right? Right? Like you're just like making something up on the fly because you're not prepared for this and you know it's going to end horribly. That's where this man was, this third man. He was judged and then he was rejected. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to speak for you. I'll just speak for me. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to stand before the Lord someday and have him say to me, take what was yours and give it to somebody else because you blew it. I want to hear what the first two heard. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I don't know how you, your life is. I'm living for two words. I'm living for well done. That's all I want. Unless we're talking about steak and then I want it to be medium. All right, so here's what I think. I think in this story we find a shift that can help us be more like the faithful servants instead of the fearful one. And so here is the shift. This week's shift is from maintaining to multiplying. Believe that God wants us to shift from maintaining to multiplying. Here's why this is so critical. This will change everything about how we live our lives, how we see church, how we do church, how we how we see the city, the people in the city. This has everything to do with what we'll do now while we wait on God to do something then. Okay, so. We're shifting from maintaining to multiplying, and because I'm such a nice person, I brought a handy-dandy comparison chart for you, okay? So here we go. We're going to walk through this chart, okay? It looks long, but it'll, it'll go quick. Here's number one. If you are maintaining, you are defensive, and if you are multiplying, you are offensive. Now, it, I, I didn't say that you're offensive, right? Like, you don't get to be a jerk if you're multiplying, what we're talking about is like defensive athletics and offensive athletics. Um, I am unashamedly a humongous Carolina Panthers fan, right? I love the Panthers. Don't, okay, yeah, I thought I heard somebody booing me and I was going to, oh, don't even start that. We're going to pray against y'all. So, one of the things that would drive me crazy about the Panthers is that the Panthers would get a lead and they would find the most creative ways to lose, right? Like they were the best at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory of any team I've ever watched, right? And so they would like have this lead and then they would start to play it like they, there's this phrase, playing not to lose. And so they would play this prevent defense, which people would always say the only thing the prevent defense does is it prevents you from winning, right? But they would play this defense that would allow suddenly the team would come back. And they would get all like, if you ever coached and watched your team suddenly get like tight because they're afraid that they're going to lose, and you start to play not to lose instead of playing to win. Defensive is make sure we don't lose anybody. Offensive is, listen to this verse. I love this in Matthew eleven twelve. 12. It says, and from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it your translation may say something like this and forceful people take hold of it the kingdom of God is offensive not defensive defensive versus offensive here's the second one my church versus his kingdom listen maintaining says how can we fix build my church maintaining is when we say things like, I love my church. And there's nothing wrong with loving your church. But we forget that our church is a part of a much bigger kingdom. Multiplying says his kingdom is way more important than my church. But you love people like It's my church. It's my God. It's my, it's my, 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 my. They sound like the um, seagulls from Finding Nemo, right? Mine, 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 mine. It's like, what are you saying? Think about this for a second. If the Lord brings revival to our church, if it's true revival, it's revival citywide. Which means it's possible that he could start something here that would cause other churches to grow more than ours. And if you have his kingdom at heart, it's all good. But if you have my church, then you're like, well, man, their increase is our decrease. And that's not the way the kingdom works. And I want to challenge you to think about the kingdom more than you think about the church. Multiplying thinks about the kingdom. Here's the third one, multiply, maintaining collects resources. Multiplying invests resources. We could stop right there and have a humongous rant about hoarding, couldn't we? <laughs> but we won't. We'll just keep going. Here, I love this one. Delay causes fear when you're maintaining, but delay causes focus. When you're multiplying. Let me explain what I mean by that. Now, I am, uh, God, I've been in church all my life. And I don't know, this is becoming less and less people have been in church all their lives. But if, how many of you have been in church long enough to have heard somebody say at some point, we're living in the last days? Hands. Okay, so I've heard people say that since I was like, since it was a lot of days ago, right? I've heard them say that enough for me to go, are you sure? Because I've heard like people in four or five decades say that. So, what happens is when there's a delay, like Jesus is coming, but he's not here yet, that delay can cause fear when you're maintaining. And here's why Oh, God, I just please come back soon. I don't want to lose what I've got. I'm just holding on with everything I got. God, please. You're like the person on the edge of the cliff. Hurry! My fingers are slipping. But when you're multiplying, the delay doesn't cause fear. It causes focus. Check check out these verses, 2 Peter 3.15. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Ephesians 5, 15 and 17. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. Live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. But understand what the Lord wants you to do. And listen, the longer he waits, the more we might lose. That's what maintaining people think. But the longer he waits, the more we might win is what multiplying people think. Multiplying people wake up in the morning and they check their news feed, right? I don't know where you go for your news. I used to do Fox News and TV stuff. Now I just go to Twitter. You check your news feed. And here's what you do when you're multiplying When you have that mindset, you check your news feed and you're like, oh, the world didn't blow up. Sweet. I got one more day, baby. I'm going to do it for the Lord today. I'm going to get busy today. I got one more day. I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know when it's going to end. But, man, God, I want to see you. But thank you for giving me 24 more hours to tell as many people as I possibly can that you want to save them. Because Peter said that your patience gives people time to be saved. That's what multiplying people think like. Insulated versus celebrated. All I'm gonna say is we insulate ourselves so much. My goodness, don't let bad people near me. Ooh. I don't know what I would do. I just want to hold on. But but look what happened to the multiplying servants. They were celebrated. I mean, like the master said, well done. I'm like clapping the hands, right? Standing ovation, that's what I wanted. And I want, I want the Lord to celebrate me, not from a pride standpoint, but for like, dude, you did it. Resources are taken. This one can be a little bit, maybe not the way we normally think, but I want to make sure you get this. Resources are taken from maintaining people. You see that, that third servant, he didn't do anything with it. And so the, the master took from him, and, and then he gave it to the others. But did you notice in the story that when he was commending the two, that he said, hey, great job, you took, you took my money, and you did, got ten times as much or five times as much, and as your reward, I'm going to give you more. I would have thought he'd give more money, but he didn't. What did he give them? Cities, right? I heard somebody say responsibility. Yes, he gave them cities. Because here's the thing. Resources are taken from maintaining people, but authority is given to multiplying people. Authority. Like, hey, I can trust you. I can trust you. I can give you authority, and you'll do the right thing with it. You know, the greatest gift a child can give a parent, you're like, you're telling your kids, listen to this, right? The greatest gift a child can give the parent is that they can do the right thing when the parent's not there to parent. That is the greatest gift. You know, it's not any different with us and our Heavenly Father. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for people who can do what he's asked them to do. Now, check this out. Again, go to a community group, right? I don't have time to talk through this now. But in this story, we talk so much about the presence of the Lord and, like, we want his presence, and that's a good thing. But they did their work when he was not around. Do you see that? It was in his absence that they did the work. He said, I'm going away. So while I go away, here's what I need you to do. Invest this. And they did what they were supposed to do while he was not around. I want God to look at us and say, I can trust the people at the gathering. I mean, I want them to have my presence, but even if they went through a time when they felt like I wasn't even near them, they're still going to be faithful to do what I asked them to do. And when God sees that in us, he doesn't just give us more money. He says, I'm going to give you authority over cities. And then the last one is that maintaining values seating capacity. And multiplying values, sending capacity. Well, what does that even mean? It means this. Matthew 28, 19. The command that Jesus gave us was to go into all the world, right? Into how many nations? that was an easy one. It's on the screen. How many nations? All? Could you, like, it's pretty, pretty full in this room right now. Um, if the heat index is up a little bit, I mean, are you feeling it? It's a little tropical, at least under my arms. It's a little tropical, right? Can you imagine if all the nations were in this room? Be like, couldn't move, right? Like that command in and of itself implies that we, it's not about seating capacity. You could never build a building with enough seats to house the kingdom of God. One of our core four values is uncontainable, the uncontainable kingdom of Jesus. Like, it's not about building a big enough building for what God wants to do because you can't. Like, just the very fact that he said go to all the world and make disciples of all nations means that all of them can't come here. We've got to go there. And so when you're maintaining, it's like, how can we keep our people and make get more people in this place so that we have a great thing going. And what God's saying is, I'm not looking for you to keep people. I'm looking for you to get people out. God's not so concerned that your butt can sit in the seat. He's like, can your feet take the gospel out? That's what he's after. That's what multiplying says. Can we send people? So what we learn from this story, and this is really, really important, Is that giving back to the king what the king gave to us is not a win? I want you to, man, please, I'll say it again so you can write it down. Giving back to the king what the king gave to us is not a win. This third guy, he didn't lose anything, did he? He's like, I I wrapped it up because I didn't want to lose it, so here you go. And by not losing anything, he lost everything because that wasn't the goal. The master didn't say, hold on to this for me. He said, invest it. So giving back to Jesus the life that he gave us, I didn't lose anything, God. I held on. I, I, I barely made it, but I made it. It's not a win. It's not what he's given us our life for. And this, is, this can sound kind of crazy, but the king wants more. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You know what that means? It means that Jesus, he wants heaven to be full and he wants hell to be empty. And so as long as there are more people that could be going to hell, the king is saying, keep investing. Keep working. Keep serving because there's more people that I want to reach. Well, God, I'm so tired. I wish you would just come back. He's like, but my delay allows people to come to me. Let the delay focus you. Don't cause it to make you afraid. He wants multipliers, not maintainers. So in this story about resources and investing, can I just make this statement? Jesus is not looking for money managers. He's looking for kingdom leaders. Who can I trust with my authority? Who can I trust to do what I've asked him to do even in my absence? So here's the bottom line we've um we've believed the lie that the christian life is safe we've bought this lie that if i give my heart to jesus then i'll be safe that if i take this one life the only life i've got and i just protect myself somehow I'll be able to give myself back to God in mint condition, not a scratch, not no damage. But the bottom line is that he didn't call us to that. Careful in the next area. <sighs> that got a little awkward right there. Can I just say this, that what we've done is we have said to God, God, use me. And God looks at us and says, use you? I can't even get to you. You're so protected. You're so afraid. I can't even. I'll go anywhere, Lord. Just give me a second. I'll step in authority for your kingdom, man of power. And then we wonder why we don't feel like our life's counting. Here's what I'm praying this morning. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and is active. And it's like a two-edged sword. And it cuts to the core of who we are, right? And sometimes you just need the word of God to Oh, be careful. Please be careful. You just need the word of God to cut through the protective layers really trusting you right now. So that you can step out in power. Psalm 34, 7 says this. That. The Lord is our rear guard. See, the reason that we bubble wrap our lives, I just want to step all over now. The reason that we bubble wrap our lives is because we're not trusting God to protect our lives. But when we understand that he's calling us to something greater than who we are, and he actually said that he would give us the Holy Spirit in us and the armor of God around us, and he would be our rear guard, and he would protect those who call out to him, then we step out differently. Here's your big idea. The mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus shifts us from making our lives safe to making our lives count. God didn't call you to safety. He called you to make your life count. If we only live to be 12, but we serve the purpose of God in our generation, then we made our lives count. And that's what he's after. I love this from Psalm 34. It says this in verse 6. In my desperation I prayed. Now listen, desperation, that's why we bubble wrap our lives. Can we be honest? Can I just play, play a little bit, just be really, really clear? We bubble wrap our lives because we're in desperate marriages. We're in desperate jobs. We're in desperate schools. We're in desperate situations with peers who are talking about us behind our back. We're in desperate need. And so we bubble wrap our lives because somebody's got to protect me. And God says this, when you prayed, the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all. Everybody say all. All who fear him. You've been given something by the Lord. You know what it is? It's your life. And you can bubble wrap it and do what that third servant did. He's like, Lord, I was afraid of you, so I just made sure I got back to you all in one piece. Ta-da! And God's going to say, but I ask you to spend your life, to invest your life for my kingdom. Paul said at the end of his life, I have been poured out like a drink offering. He said, I have nothing left. And I want to pray this morning, man, that you give your life away. That you would stop playing it safe, that our church would stop playing it safe, and we would start to make our lives count for the gospel. Would you close your eyes? I want to end this morning praying for you. Some of you are here this morning and you want nothing more than for your life to count. And this morning, the Lord is calling you out away from the bubble wrap to trust Him. That if he leads you somewhere, he will take you and protect you. He's calling us as a church to say, look, it's more than Albemarle. We want to reach the world. And so we want to be a church that can multiply and send people. And that's scary because what, God, if you call the people that we think we really need? And that's just bubble wrap. And we want to cut it this morning. And open ourselves up, Lord, to you. Do whatever you want to do in us. This morning, if, if that's a prayer that resonates with you, I just want you to stand. I want you to lift your hands to the Lord, and I'm going to pray over you as we head out today. Your heart is to be used by him. To not protect your life, but to spend it. To not be ruled by the fear of what ifs, but instead by the promise of what if God came through. If that's you, stand right now. Put your hands in the air and let's pray. Lord, right now as we come to the end of this service, it is just the end of a service. But it is not the end of serving. You have called us God to something far greater than we ever could imagine. God, this morning we are giving ourselves back to you. We recognize that we are really not even the servants, but we are the miners. We are the silver. We are what's being spent. And so what we're saying to you this morning is, God, we are currency in your hands. Spend us anywhere you choose so that you get the most return on your investment. And to that end, God, to that end, we are all in on your mission. Whatever it takes to seek and save the lost, we'll do it. We're not going to maintain because that's not a win. We want to have the heart of a multiplying church and to send and send and send in your name, Jesus. Amen. Man.